Blog Talk Radio. This is a solutions-oriented talk radio show and podcast, and I am your host, Brian Perkins. Today, I'm particularly excited to have with me uh, a brilliant um, attorney and um, CEO, former investment banker and internet executive, um, who uh, has been doing some work um, that I think would be very uh, informative of, of the audience today. Um, we've had some great conversations uh, right before uh, the, the broadcast. I always have a talk with my uh, guests and we, we barely got to some of the housekeeping because we just had such a, a great um, start to, um, to talk. And so I want to uh, introduce to some of you uh, a, a new friend that I have, and it is Valerie Alexander. Valerie, welcome. Thank you so much, Brian. I am really happy to be here. Well, glad to have you. And I, I, one of the first things I tell my guests is that it's a 30-minute uh, podcast, and we, we go re- the time goes by really fast. And so I have a lot of things I want to ask, a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But I, I guess I want to start with letting everyone know, and you can go if some of you have probably received this link on uh, LinkedIn and other places where the website where you might follow uh, this uh, this broadcast, uh, but there will be a link to a TED Talk, a brilliant, absolutely brilliant TED Talk that um, Valerie did a couple years ago, um, and she's a, a globally recognized speaker, and um, and it is on how to outsmart your own unconscious bias. And so we're going to get to talking about that in just a moment because that's really the focus of today's. Uh, broadcast, but what I I do want to do is give us an opportunity to learn a little bit about Valerie, because uh, I I told you she's a former uh, attorney and investment banker and exec, um, but she's also the CEO of a a firm called Speak Happiness, and and I love that uh, she has as a part of I went on the website and looked that there, uh, there's a, a real emphasis on what uh, she describes as fluency in happiness and success. So why don't we start there? Valerie, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd love to hear how you moved from those days and hours as, an, as, as a securities lawyer and to where you are now. Um, but tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, this firm, Speak Happiness. Sure. The, my career started the same way so many people's careers start, which is I showed up for what I could get paid for. And mm-hmm. I think so many people, we, don't, we come out of school, we don't have as many choices. How many people do you know who work in insurance because insurance is the first job they got out of school? <laughs> sure. And 
Or I the thing I always say is people do what their parents did, and we see that throughout life. You're going to now that I've said it out loud, people are going to notice it over and over and over. They'll they'll meet a plumber and they'll find out that that person's dad was a plumber. Um, and I went to law school after college because that was the next thing to do. I hated it. I dropped out after a year. I started applying to economics PhD programs because that's what I truly wanted to do. And luckily, I got into the one at the same school where I was at law school, which was Berkeley. And they, so they readmitted me to the law school. Long story, I wound up graduating with both degrees. And so I came out and started practicing law. And again, I was still just kind of showing up. Very quickly, I was in the Silicon Valley during the first internet boom. So I very quickly went from law to investment banking to being an executive at an internet company. And then my mom got sick. She had a brain tumor. um, And I realized I was done with the Silicon Valley. I didn't want to be there anymore. I wasn't getting any rewards out of the work I was doing. And so I quit my job. I sold my house. I sold my car. I gave away all my furniture. And with two suitcases and a dog, I moved (laughs) back to Indiana, and I took care of my mom. Mm -hmm. And that was a great year. That was a Mm -hmm. great thing to do. It was a great year to do it. And she got better. My mother is still with us. I'm going to be speaking to her later today. And that was 20 years ago. Wow. And so at the end of that year when she was healthy and ready to get on with her own life, I was ready to get back to mine, which was in California. I was a California girl. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to the West Coast, instead of turning right to go back to the Silicon Valley, I turned left and went to Hollywood. Um, and I started writing movies because that's what I truly wanted to do. And How awesome is that? <laughs> I, amazing. Well, I wrote three scripts right away and they were terrible. If anybody <laughs> out there ever wants to write a screenplay, I'm going to say this, just write it because it's going to be terrible. Your first screenplay is terrible. My first three were terrible. And so finally I took how to, how to write. I intro to screenwriting at UCLA. I wrote a script that wasn't terrible. It started a career that was really quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. And um, and then my union went on strike. I'm, I'm a member of the Writers Guild. We went on strike. And during that strike, I started writing books. And at one point, my husband said to me, how are you so happy? We, what we're going Because my husband was also a screenwriter. We were both on strike at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I don't even know. It's not even my native language. Mm-hmm. And that's when it hit me. Happiness is like a language that you speak. Mm-hmm. Because... You, you don't remember learning English, do you? Right, right. And, no, and if, no, and if everyone in your house spoke Greek, you would speak Greek. Mm-hmm. But if no one in your house spoke Greek, you wouldn't wake up one day and think, I should be a Greek speaker. Right. I, I'm just going to read a book about it. Or let me think really hard. Let me remind myself. It, you read a blog post that says, you know, 18 ways to speak Greek. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. So why do we buy it when we read a blog post that says 18 ways to make yourself happy? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lifetime commitment to study and learning and growing and changing. You know, incre- small incremental changes over a lifetime make you a happier person. And so if you wake up every day and say, I'm a happy person, that this is fake it till you make it. You're building the neural pathways it takes. Build those neural pathways. Tell yourself you're a happy person, you become a happy person. If you're having a reaction that you doesn't feel good, think, would a happy person do this? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, just it, it, it's an amazing way to 
program your own brain towards happiness, but it is a continuous effort. And so that's why when I started Speak Happiness, I wrote the book Happiness as a Second Language. Uh, I followed it with the book Success as a Second Language. I started a publishing company that produces other as a second language books. We just last month produced, um, published Mindfulness as a Second Language. Oh, wow. And it's been wonderful. Parenting, as it's, we have books on parenting, on creativity, on grief, um, and now on mindfulness and happiness and success. So it's very exciting to be able to help people with these gentle, accessible guidance books. That makes a lot of sense. And you know what you just what you just mentioned about programming your brain is an excellent segue to actually what I, I you know I know um, everybody tuned in about is about this the idea that you can outsmart your own unconscious bias. And so I you know as I said to uh, the audience at the beginning, this uh, TED talk tells a little bit about what you. Um, your thoughts about bias, and you had some wonderful stories that you shared about your own experiences. And I'm sure there are a lot of us who've had personal experiences, but I thought, you know, the exercise you had people do at the beginning, um, if you don't care sharing with the audience was, was excellent as well. Um, but, um, but it, but thinking about programming your brain, um, you you propose that there's a way that we can kind of intentionally, deliberately do exercises to overcome our biases, and that's I, I, this is a very different way of thinking about um, bias um, as something that you can address in this way. So, do you can, please share with us uh, um, your suggestions about that? The brain science behind bias is really quite fascinating. And there are two schools of thought in the equity and inclusion community. One is don't talk about unconscious bias because it, quote, unquote, lets people off the hook for their bias. Talk about implicit bias. Uh-huh. <laughs> people like me who talk about unconscious bias, I am literally talking about the way your brain functions. And I don't want there to be judgment. But like if, if you are not conscious of how your brain is reacting to something, then that, that no one has ever changed from a place of shame and judgment. No one ever says, oh, you call me a racist? I'd better examine my inner thoughts and figure out how to you know, alter my worldview. No one reacts that way. But if you say to somebody, I'm not sure if you're aware, but what you just said is racially problematic, can I point out to you why that's so? Mm-hmm. That person mm-hmm. might be open to hearing that, and they might have no idea. When I, I, I do trainings at uh, major corporations, Fortune 100 companies, uh, I'll speak at their conferences or their annual meetings, or I'll train the top executives. And the point I share is that your brain, for through millions of years of evolution, has a bunch of shortcuts that keeps you alive, which is our brains, as soon as humans started living in tribes, we started living in tribes about 2 million years ago. As soon as we started living in tribes, the brain created a reaction to anyone who is not in your tribe. It goes on high alert because that was a, mar- that was a potential source of unsafety, of danger. And mm-hmm. so 
when you encounter someone who's not in your tribe, your amygdala uh, fires up. That's your fight or flight center, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. But it's your fight or flight center in your brain. It fires up. It engages your hypothalamus to engage your adrenal, uh, your uh, endocrine, your <laughs> your <laughs> adrenal glands, and it releases cortisol into your bloodstream. That happens in a split second mm-hmm. because you've encountered someone who's not in our tribe. That's the result of millions of years of evolution to keep the human species alive. So none of us are going to be able to change that reaction in our brain mm-hmm. when we see mm-hmm. someone who's not in our tribe. What we can change is who we see is in our tribe. Mm. If you just see every human being is in my tribe, you're a fellow human being. You have a sentient brain and a functioning body that looks a lot like mine, is shaped like mine and evolved to be like mine. You're a fellow human being. You are in my tribe. And if you can actively change who you see is in your tribe, you can actively change who you're having reactions to. And I want to add one more point on this. Our reactions are based on what is a norm for us. Your brain likes what is normal. It doesn't like what is not normal in any situation. And your norm is based on a whole slew of factors on how you were raised, on encounters you've had or maybe never had with people who are different from you, on the laws and the government policies and the place where you grew up, on who was shown to be a danger or not a danger in your neighborhood based on how the authorities behaved, based mm-hmm. on community mm-hmm. policies. And, oh, my Lord, Brian, on media images. Yes. Most of us get our impression of the people who are not within our immediate family from the media images. That is our first impression of the other is just from the media. Mm -hmm. So think about every media image you've ever seen of someone who is not like you. Sure. And how much that, and the other part about the norm that just bothers me so much, the the specific to the individualness of the norm when Sonia Sotomayor was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, they kept asking her, as a Latina woman, can, will your decisions be neutral? Well, mm. no one asked the white men that. Right. What made right. their decisions more neutral than hers? Mm-hmm. The majority is not neutral. The majority also comes from a basis of norms that formed their views and their opinions. And just because they're the ones in the majority, that doesn't make it everybody's norm. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting what you, what you just brought up because, um, I, you know, I think about uh, we, we've had some people on uh, the show recently that have talked about uh, neuroplasticity and talked about uh, even we've had uh, someone on talking about anti-racist uh, behavior, uh, anti-bias, um, and and there's this recent conversation that has emerged that somehow anti-racist, anti-bias is anti-white. And w- w- what do you say to that? What do you say to people who are saying that these are all ways, because ultimately we, we end up talking about ways in which majority populations have been privileged or 
um, or benefited from those policies that you've talked about. Um, and so somehow that discomfort has made people um, move to the side that these are anti, you know, white um, discussions. The analogy I use for that is have you ever been sitting at, uh, in a parking spot? You're sitting in a parking spot in your car, and the car next to you starts to pull. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a car pulls up next yes. to you. You're yes. in a, parking spot, a car pulls up next to you, and suddenly you feel like you're going backwards, so you slam right. on your brakes. Right. When someone else starts catching up to you, if you're not completely aware of your surroundings, you're going to feel like you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. And that is unfortunately what is happening to a lot of white people. And it, I can say it infuriates me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how someone can say, you can't have what I have because, or, or I worked for absolutely everything I have with no acknowledgement of what portion of that of society made it easier for you, that, that your name on the top of a resume got you an interview with someone with the exact same resume would not have gotten that interview. Mm-hmm. And so, by the way, none of this is anti-white. And the people who are trying, anybody using the phrase anti-white has putting their own defensiveness in front of a more egalitarian society. Now, Mm -hmm. I understand that people who don't want a more egalitarian society, but I'm going to get a little political too. People Mm -hmm. who against diversity and inclusion and equity, and those are three different things, by the way. Mm -hmm. Diversity is bringing more people through the door, bringing other people through the door, bringing, bringing in the people who have not been represented up to now. Equity is making sure those people have the equal opportunity to advance, that they're being judged on the criteria of their performance, not the criteria of uh, biased expectations of them. And, and by the way, also the same freedom to fail. If you're going to have equity, you have to give people the same freedom to fail. And I know you're in education. I want to talk about educators in one second. But um, then inclusion is making sure that people feel welcome where they are. And the resistance to diversity, equity, and inclusion are people who think it's costing them something, mm-hmm. people who think they're losing out. That is something else. If you look at any of the studies, this is absolutely an area where a high tide raises all boats. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. and companies and organizations that have a more representative of society workforce or volunteer force or student body actually do better. Uh, there's, they do financially better. They get better results. In education, the reason I want to talk about expectation is so important. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the, it's the 1964 study they call it, it's called yes. the Pygmalion effect. Yeah. yeah. Where mm-hmm. they, the, the researchers did IQ tests at the beginning of the school year for first graders. And they, at the, after they got the results of those tests, they told the teacher, these three students are gifted. We, we've tested them. These three students are gifted. Just so you know, they're not going to have different curriculum. They're not going to be treat, you know, 
taught any mm-hmm. differently, but you should know these three are gifted. Now, those three students were chosen at random in every classroom. They mm-hmm. were not gifted, or they may have, but it was, they were chosen at random. At random, sure. At the end of the school year, they reran the IQ tests. Those three students in every classroom were not only in the top of the class in every classroom, but those three students had the largest improvement in their IQ from the course of the year. How about that? Now, why does that happen? If it happens, I'll ask you, if a student is struggling with a math problem and the teacher knows that's a gifted student, how are they going to react to that student struggling with a math problem? Mm. Well, I mean, as most make assumptions about why uh, they are struggling, and they, but I think the the first thing is that their assumption is that they actually do have the ability to do it, and that yes. I think that's the first major assumption. Yeah, they assume they have the ability to do it. So then the teacher might give them a little more time, give them more attention, show them more of the steps. Um, maybe maybe the teacher will question whether that problem is too advanced, and and uh, you know adjust the lesson, but. If a student is struggling with a math problem and that teacher looks at that student and thinks, well, that kid's kind of a dummy anyway. Mm-hmm. Or I've had that kid's you know, brothers and sisters and none of them could get these problems. Or every student I've ever had who looked like this was bad at math. Now what is the teacher going to do when that student struggles with a math problem? Mm-hmm. They're just going to give up. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, mm-hmm. never mind. This is too hard for you. Mm-hmm. They will not give them extra time. They will not give them extra attention. Now, this is a generalization. I, I, I'd always have teachers sure. in, who hear me, and they're like, I would give that student extra Okay, great. You would give yeah. that student extra time. <laughs> sure, but, sure. Right. But that's what happens in all of society. That's what happens in our workplaces. If we've never seen someone, we've never seen a woman as the welding foreman, and then that woman makes the exact same mistake that every other welding foreman on every other work site has ever made. Sure. But suddenly, oh, she, she can't do the job. Instead mm-hmm. of, oh, yeah, this is the typical mistake people make when they get into this role for the first time. Sure. And sure. that's what we're taking away with our bias. We're taking away people's opportunity to fail in order to grow. Mm-hmm. And when you made a comment about people getting uncomfortable, when I, when I do trainings, um, the first thing I say is we're going to get good and uncomfortable in here. <laughs> I'm going to share things with you that take you out of your comfort zone because no one in the history of humankind has ever grown from their own comfort zone. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, you, you've raised so yeah. many excellent points, I think, about um, as I peruse the internet and we see these stories um a lot of them are success stories and they are almost hands down almost like whenever they are the stories of overcoming adversity they are stories about either people of color um or women and i recently was just looking through um on on linkedin and i saw a a photograph and it made me think about your TED talk, but I saw a photograph of a, a daughter and her father, um, both are pilots and it was presented and they were both African-American, but it was look. And I remember my own reaction was, 
wow, you're like in absolute amazement. Right. And right. and it, and like I said, it made me think about your TED talk. But it was I I just wow, I never thought that that could happen. You're like not not directly, but it was that was my reaction was that that is amazing that that actually happened, and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been the same reaction had it not been a person of color uh, or persons of color. And that, and so I think, you know, you going back to, you know, the whole idea of biases, we have them and it's because these things happen to us in terms of the, getting those biases very early in life. I think about my, my oldest daughter, um, very early on, and I, I, I think she couldn't have been more than, say, three years old, but um, people who've heard me talk, I've talked about what I describe as the Barbie doll dilemma, and I remember so much had been done to try to influence her positively about being a dark complexion, um, young um, African-American uh, girl and thinking positively about that because of the images that are out there uh, surrounding that. And I remember when she became, and I, I, as I said, no more than three years old, insisted upon having a white Barbie doll. And the thing that was most disturbing was her reason for wanting the white Barbie doll was because she said it was prettier. And, but what it taught me very early on as a father of girls um, was that the bias that gets put into that is out there in our society is much more pervasive than we even know because such effort had been put in. And I'm talking about effort like um, no television, only kind of multicultural books on, you know, with, with images of multicultural everything. And for her, even with all of that, before the age of three, to come to the conclusion that the white Barbie doll was prettier was just absolutely a, you know, like just a letdown. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it, it, it just, you know, it brings me to um, you made some suggestions about what people can do uh, to address bias but from a brain science perspective. Do you want to share that with our audience? Well, there are the three things in the TED Talk that I would invite everybody to watch the TED Talk because those the suggestions of change your visualization, mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. change what is normal in your world. I actually, because your audience is so many educators, I have a talk I give specifically for the educational arena, and I want to share there's different suggestions in that, and I think these are important, and it's not in the TED Talk. So please watch the TED Talk. That's how you can change it personally. Within the education sphere, the number one thing you can do is amplify. Amplify the voices of people who aren't being heard. You can do this in meetings in your department. You can do it in your classroom. Women and people of color tend to get talked over and interrupted when we're contributing. And if you notice that happen, what you do, you say something like, uh, Carol was suggesting a different admissions criteria, and I think we need to discuss that further. Or 
I don't think Jamal was done with his point, and I'd like to hear what he has to say. Because when you amplify someone, you don't say what they just said. You don't repeat. You direct the conversation back to them. You make sure they are heard. Have a no interrupting policy in all your meetings. Have a no interrupting policy in your classrooms. Make mm-hmm. sure that, the, that everyone's voice is heard. That's extremely important. Another thing that's very important, mentor people who don't look like you, but make sure everyone is getting mentored in a way mm-hmm. that will advance their own success. One of the things that happens in the corporate environment is that people of color get mentored on the corporate culture and how to fit in. And women get mentored on presenting themselves with more confidence. And mm-hmm. white men get mentored on the business skills that are needed to advance in the company. Wow. And so then when it comes time to advance someone, one person has the strategy acumen and the financial acumen and the business knowledge to be a greater contributor to the company. And so that, so make sure people are getting mentored on the actual skills they need to advance. And if they need those other soft skills, well, first off, if, if women need confident skills, there's books they can read, there's things they can take. If people of color are being mentored on how to fit into the culture, maybe examine the culture. Don't think of people as a culture fit. Think of them as a culture add. Mm. There's added value to your culture when it's not all the same people thinking the same way. And then here is the biggest and most important thing you can do for anyone who is bringing diverse perspectives. The value of diversity isn't different body parts or different skin color or different uh, you know, physical abilities. The value of diversity is the diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. We want to be, hear from and be exposed to people who think differently. That's how we grow. That's how society moves forward. And so we have to sponsor the people who think differently and see differently and bring additive value to our educational communities, to our workplaces, to our families. And you sponsor by speaking for someone when they're not there. Uh, Speak up for someone when they're not in the room. Mm -hmm. Be the champion who gets them thought of for the good promotion or for the great assignment. Be the goalkeeper who stops them from getting relegated to the low-level scut work that only Mm -hmm. seems to get assigned to the people who look like them. Sure, sure. Yeah. Excellent. And if you do that, speak for someone who's not in the room, mentor people with the skills they need for success, and amplify the voices of people who aren't being heard. The the the, the vision will change. Excellent. Excellent. Those are excellent, excellent points. Well, I know we're running out of time, and I have someone who has been holding on for a while that called. Um, I'm going to patch them in and uh, take one question uh, from a caller that is calling in from Florida. Caller, are you there? Yes. Yes, please proceed with your comment or question. Okay, so how are you? Good morning. So my question is, as a, as, a, um, as a team leader in education, how do you nicely get your team uncomfortable when it comes to educating them about not making assumptions, good or bad, about students of the opposite race, especially during a pandemic? One of the things I believe is if you can't hide it, highlight it. Um, 
or as I say, hang a lantern on it, which means you start, you start the conversation saying, with everybody, don't single someone out. You know, don't, you have to say, don't call people out, call people in. But you say, we're, we've got to get good and uncomfortable here. There are some things we could be doing better. Don't use the you and the I word. Use the we word. So there are things we could be getting better about this, and it's going to push people out of their comfort zones. I need to know that everyone's going to be okay with that, that everyone's good with getting good and uncomfortable. And then right. check in. And, and if someone, everyone says, okay, say, all right. And then acknowledge the discomfort throughout. I have a whole section on white privilege where I point, and I, I talk to CEO groups all the time where I swear I'm talking to a room of white men <laughs> over 50. Sure. sure, sure. And when we get to the section on white privilege, I say, you are not going to like some of the things I say. I am open to discussing them. I am open to having a conversation about them, but we are not going to gloss over them just to keep everybody here comfortable because think about the people who've had to bear the discomfort of this issue for the last 400 years. Mm-hmm. It's our turn to bear a little mm-hmm. discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend the book, by the way, Color of Law. If anybody wants to deny exactly how uneven the playing field has been, Please read the book Color of Law. Your denial will have to will just end right there. But mm-hmm. let people know I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not passing judgment. Again, that's why I use the phrase unconscious bias instead of implicit bias because I'm not here to pass judgment on the way somebody's brain behaves based on the fact that at the age of three, every magazine cover in the, in the grocery store has a picture of a white girl on it. So you unfortunately start to believe something about beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brian's daughter had that belief about beauty. Unfortunately, so did the white girls. They got that same belief from that same platform. I'm not going to judge them for having had that. But what I will do is say now is the time to we are homo sapiens sapiens. Homo sapiens means, you know, the, the being with knowledge. Homo sapiens sapiens means the being with knowledge and awareness of that knowledge. We don't get to, it, it's, it is excusable that you, your brain has a bias reaction because of the norms you were raised with. Mm-hmm. It is, that is not an excuse to keep getting it wrong now mm-hmm. that you have that awareness. You, you know how your brain functions, and it's time to take to take action mm-hmm. and change it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So well stated, and really appreciate you. And um, I know that you have to uh, make some make a travel today. And uh, my regards yeah. again to your family. And um, please be safe. Um, Valerie, this has been so enlightening. Um, you should see this. Um, the switchboard is so lit up. We're going to stop <laughs> here. Uh, people are going to call and write, I know, for a while with this. Um, um, Valerie has a website on Speak Happiness where you can reach her directly. Again, um, the, the title of her TED Talk is how to outsmart your own unconscious bias, where she gives some individual 
um, suggestions of things that you can do to reshape your brain into thinking differently uh, about the things that you um, that are your normal. Um, and and so again, we're so thankful uh, that you took the time uh, to come and share with us. Uh, again, I'm I'm getting um, text messages and and feeds in that everyone is loving uh, what you had to say, and I think that's an excellent way to end. And so, Valerie, be well, stay well, and the same to the audience. I'll see you on December seventh, where we have Dr. Shannon Bailey, who is a Yale-trained um, cell biologist that's going to be here to explain in lay terms about the pandemic, the virus, and the vaccine. So please be here on December 7th at another noontime broadcast. And so, Valerie, until we meet again, go well, stay well. Thank you, Dr. Perkins. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.